Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Africa, a continent that encompasses 54 nations, over a billion people, and thousands of languages, has four of the top 10 fastest growing nations, according to the World Bank, although many of them have among the lowest per capita incomes in the world. During the week of September 19, as the United Nations General Assembly convenes in New York, the second U.S.-Africa Business Forum meets to build on progress started at the inaugural forum two years ago. Here to talk about the forum, its positives and negatives, and what it can mean for further American economic engagement with African nations is Amadou C., Senior Fellow and Director of the Africa Growth Initiative here at Brookings. Stay tuned in this episode for a new Metro Lens segment from Elizabeth Kneebone and then a discussion with Stephen Koltai, author of a new title from the Brookings Institution Press, Peace Through Entrepreneurship. Amadou, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, you were on the show two years ago to talk about Africa, and now you're back on to talk about Africa again. First, let's set the stage. What is the U.S.-Africa Business Forum? Yeah, thanks, Fred. Um, so um, the forum uh, is one of President Obama's initiatives uh, regarding Africa. And basically, um, the forum is just basically... Um, one way um, to build and strengthen uh, trade and investment ties between uh, the U.S. and the continent. And who attends the forum? So it's a very high-level forum attended by um, U.S. Uh, CEOs, African CEOs, and uh, African head of governments. And I noted that it, in my research that it's uh, co-hosted by the U.S. Department of Commerce and... A Bloomberg entity? Yeah, uh, it's co-hosted um, with uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, and actually, uh, this is the second time that the forum is happening. And um, these are the same actors that we had last time, two years ago. Okay. So in that forum two years ago, in 2014, uh, that was coinciding with the uh, Africa Leaders Summit uh, here in Washington. What, what did that forum accomplish? Well, I think uh, the first um, uh, accomplishment is um, to get uh, U.S. Uh, uh, businesses and uh, actually U.S. Uh, uh, stakeholders to look at Africa as a partner, as a business partner. Um, typically in the U.S. and for uh, uh, very good reasons, Africa has been looked at as a uh, um, a aid recipient, a humanitarian case. Uh, and it's true that Africa ha has uh, a need for humanitarian aid. And uh, we will remember President Bush's um, uh, PEPFAR in uh, a, a very good effort to help eradicate and, or at least uh, uh, combat uh, HIV AIDS. But it's not just uh, everything in Africa, right? The other side of the coin is, as you said, we have... Um, uh, fast-growing economies, we have business opportunities, and this is trying to really put Africa on the map. So the first forum was about why Africa as a business partner, and the second one will be about how, how to do it, how to implement, how to t seize the opportunities, how to engage Africa. Uh, so if those are the goals, what are, what are some of the positive aspects of this kind of forum? Why now? Why in New York? Yeah. So, so, so the as I said, the first one really 
kind of put Africa on the business map, on the trade and investment map. And there were lots of pledges. I think about 30 plus billion dollars uh, were pledged by uh, both U.S. and African CEOs uh, in a very uh, diverse set of sectors, um, clean energy, aviation, um, agriculture, and so on. And this is uh, a departure from just looking at Africa as a uh, um, destination for um, uh, mining and natural resources and minerals and oils and so on flows. Uh, so, so that was good. Uh, it's difficult to track how much of these pledges were actually ended up in real dollars. But um, um, you can, for example, look at... Um, uh, some of the projects in the Power Africa initiative, and they have a website, and at least we can we ha we can document some of it. Yeah, the other uh, thing is also uh, this comes at a very very little cost for the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, the U.S. government is really trying to be a matchmaker, a Sherpa, uh, you know, trying to say okay. It's not easy doing business in Africa, but you know, let, let's look at the challenges and let let's guide uh, American business in how to maneuver, how to navigate uh, these uh, these territory territories. Well, very little cost for the U.S. taxpayer to, to host this event. That's a very big positive. Um, are there negatives though for this sort of so? Event? So one is, you know, uh, first, it's a very high-level summit. So you have the top CEOs, African and, and Americans, and you have the head of states. So which uh, comes at the risk of political grandstanding from, from uh, some, 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 some of the leaders, which comes of the risk at a little bit ignoring um, the small and medium enterprises. It's true that the U.S. government has other ways to engage uh, SMEs like the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, but uh, it would have been great, really, to um, have SMEs um, on the on the on the floor uh, and and see how to engage them also as part of this forum. So, what do you expect to happen at the second forum, and what do you hope will come out of it? Well, I've just came come come back from 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 uh, my country, Senegal, and I've talked to a few investors, and they were a bit. Um, these were private equity people, and they were a bit worried that you know uh, that there would be a little bit of political grandstanding. They were asking tough questions: Are are African leaders really prepared? Um, you know, do they have uh, uh, really? Um, you know, prepare to get some concrete uh, commitments and some concrete actions out of this summit. And I guess you will have, uh, uh, you know, Africa is not a country, and, and my bet is that some countries will be better prepared than others, you know, and, 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 it, and, 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 and that would have been good to have really um, uh, all the countries be as well prepared as they could be. But... Uh, you know, I think this summit will really uh, try to address the tough questions. How do you uh, navigate um, trade and investment opportunities in Africa? Um, it's not obvious. The answers are not easy. But I think, I hope that, um, you know, some concrete actions will come out of it. Um, the other thing, though, the positive on the positive side, you know, I've, I've talked to some 
uh, companies who, although they will not be part of the summit, uh, you know, the summit will be on the fringes of the UN General Assembly in New York. So some some of these companies are having their own meetings because, you know, the crowd will be there. So they're trying to attract some of these heads of states and some of these CEOs to have their side meetings and so on. So on the positive side, it's good, I think, to have, uh, you know, Basically, you cannot develop Africa and have a make a big dent on on the problems of human development that we have without involving the private sector. So, on the it's 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 a, it's it's good that we have the private sector, both African and U.S. Um, on on, but now we really have to come to some concrete actions uh, and and start a conversation and and keep track of progress, which is not that easy, but it has to be done. Let's take a quick break here for another Metro Lens segment, this time with Elizabeth Kneebone, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program. Then we'll get back to the discussion with Amadou, and we'll talk more broadly about U.S. economic involvement and engagement with Africa. In a recent analysis of neighborhood poverty data, my colleague Natalie Holmes and I found that the nation had passed a sobering tipping point in the wake of the Great Recession. For the first time, most poor people in the United States, 55%, now live in a high-poverty neighborhood. That's a neighborhood, or census tract in this case, where at least 20% of residents live below the federal poverty line. Why is that such a significant statistic? Because research has shown that the negative effects associated with concentrations of poverty and distressed neighborhoods, like higher violent crime rates, failing schools, higher dropout rates, worse health outcomes, or lower life expectancy— Those negative effects begin to emerge once a neighborhood's poverty rate crosses that 20% threshold. And those negative effects pile on in ways that make it harder for families and individuals to break the cycle of poverty and move up the economic ladder. But poor neighborhoods don't just create challenges for poor people. Anyone that calls these communities home is subject to the negative consequences of living in distressed and disinvested places. And the fact of the matter is that the people most likely to live in such neighborhoods are people of color. Today, most African Americans live in a high-poverty neighborhood. Not just the majority of poor African Americans, most African Americans, period. 53% of the nation's black population lives in a census tract with a poverty rate of 20% or higher. Hispanics are not far behind at 46%. In stark contrast, only 18% of whites live in a high-poverty neighborhood. These glaring racial and spatial gaps add perspective to the long chain of protests and unrest sparked by the police killings of African Americans across the country in Ferguson, Baltimore, Chicago, Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and the list goes on. But take the St. Louis region as one example. The African-American population in the metro area actually suburbanized over the course of the 2000s. Even as the city of St. Louis shed black residents between 2000 and 2014, the African-American population in the suburbs grew by more than 50,000. That's an increase of about 17%. But contrary to popular perceptions, moving to the suburbs doesn't always mean moving to opportunity. The St. Louis region added 57 high-poverty neighborhoods between 2000 and 2010 to 2014. Every one of those new high-poverty neighborhoods was in the suburbs, including three of the five census tracts in Ferguson. So what's the net result of these two trends? Between 2000 and 2010 to 14, the share of Metro St. Louis's black residents living in a high-poverty neighborhood jumped 10 percentage points. 
By the end of that period, 60% of the region's African-American population lived in a census tract with poverty rates of 20% or more. In contrast, just 10% of whites in the metro area lived in such neighborhoods, a share that remained unchanged over the course of the 2000s. Such stark differences point to deeper questions about how the region has evolved over time to create such disparities, from governance, land use, and zoning decisions to discriminatory housing practices and beyond. And coupled with the rapid economic and demographic changes happening in suburbs like Ferguson, these statistics help bring into focus the underlying disparities that set the stage for the outcry and protests following the police shooting of Michael Brown. But these issues clearly aren't unique to just the St. Louis region. The fact that the majority of the nation's black population and most of our poor now live in high-poverty neighborhoods should underscore for policymakers and practitioners that we won't be able to successfully address the glaring racial and economic inequalities that exist in the United States without directly engaging the growing geographic disparities to which they're so closely linked. I'm Elizabeth Kneebone. You can find out more about the changing geography of poverty and opportunity on our website. And now let's return to the discussion about the U.S. African Business Forum. Amadou, can you talk about U.S. investment in Africa kind of broadly? What is its shape, its size, and and, and so on? So, you know, so people talk a lot about China and China's enga- engagement, economic engagement in Africa. But, uh, you know, when you look at the data, especially when you look at the foreign direct investment data, the U.S. has the largest stock of uh, foreign direct investment in Africa um, um, behind uh, the UK, right? And um, European countries also have, Eurozone as as a group has also a larger share. But uh, when you look at countries, the US is really up there. If you look at the flows, if you look at the flows of greenfield investment, a recent report by Ernst & Young, which is called Africa Attractiveness uh, Survey, uh, finds that the U.S. had uh, the largest greenfield flows, meaning um, acquisitions of new new firms and so on, uh, last year. So basically, um, the U.S. is really an important actor when it comes to investment in Africa. Um, And also... Uh, although a few years ago, uh, most of the investment, it's true, uh, was directed to countries like South Africa, Nigeria, Angola, and also Mauritius, and to sectors like uh, oil and gas uh, sector, uh, we can see a diversification uh, of the U.S. Uh, investment in Africa and uh, in sectors like uh, the hospitality business, uh, aviation, uh, and even uh, 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 information, communication, and technology. So, um, the other thing also is that typically um, uh, U.S. investment comes um, uh, often with a lot of training of local staff, uh, with some transfer of knowledge and hopefully some transfer of technology. And uh, if you look at the Pew surveys, which look at the perception of countries uh, in Africa, the U.S. has a very good um, – uh, the perception of uh, the U.S. by Africans is, is, is quite high. So, so basically, uh, the U.S. is an important um, uh, uh, investment uh, uh, investor in, in Africa. Well, it sounds like there are a lot of um, uh, diverse opportunities for investment in Africa, but what are some of the obstacles to U.S. investment there? 
Yeah, so basically, uh, there's, there's really a, a potential for uh, U.S. investments to be much higher. One thing from an African perspective is that the U.S. is so big that a small percentage change in U.S. investment uh, is a lot of money for Africa with a potential for jobs and, and um, uh, both here in the U.S. and in Africa. So, so the obstacles, um, you know, you would hear about the cost of doing business, um, you know, uh, but basically you could think about regulatory and policy um, uh, frameworks that need to be improved. Uh, you can think about, um, um, to be polite also, uh, uh, rent-sinking activities. I mean, uh, I am from Africa, and for a long time I've always cringed when people would talk about corruption in Africa and so on, because corruption um, uh, exists everywhere. Uh, but uh, we have to be realistic sometimes. Um, even when investors want to come in, uh, you know, they face uh, obstacles. And um, you have always, when you have change, you have winners and losers. And sometimes you have people who benefit from rent-seeking activities that just don't want to let go. So it, we have to be realistic and it has to be addressed. Um, yeah. What about uh, things like political instability or uncertainty, and, and there's conflict in a few African nations? I mean, by no means most of them, but in yes. a few. Yes, no, that's a good question. So the first thing is to, to realize that when you look at the data, you know, um, Africa has improved a lot, right? So if you look at, for example, civil wars or uh, conflicts between states, it has gone down drastically uh, from the 60s and the 70s, right? So that's a good thing. Um, but now the nature of political risk has changed, right? So we have more elections, uh, we have more democratic transitions, but this comes at the price of uh, post-election violence, Right. We have also um, the emergence of new actors that are uh, that that cross borders, that are cross states, uh, like Boko Haram, for example, around the Lake Chad basins. Um, but also, we've seen that in response to this threat, we've seen that c countries around the Lake Chad basins, Nigeria, the Cameroons, the Nigers, and the Chad, are putting their um, uh, putting their efforts together. To, to combat this threat. So um, I guess the, the idea is just like identifying, measuring, and managing political risk and uh, acknowledging that in Africa, uh, Africa is not a continent. Things have, uh, sorry, is not a country. And things have improved, have changed, and the nature of risk has changed. But it, it's the key issue, the key word for me is how to manage this risk, and it's doable. So you mentioned uh, China a few minutes ago and also the European Union. Um, thinking in terms of, um, or I guess I should say, should should the United States think in terms of being in competition with Chinese investors and European investors, or or is the market just so large or so many opportunities there? How should we think about Chinese and EU? Activity. Yeah. So I think really, uh, I mean, the potential is really so large. It's not easy. It takes time. One needs to do a lot of homework, but the potential is there and there is room really for different partners. Um, and there's uh, also this, this, there's comparative advantages also that exist. Like the U.S. is better than China or the EU in certain areas. And uh, the opposite is true also for other areas. 
areas. So, for example, uh, I've I've read that in oil and gas, is for very uh, for exploration for. Uh, 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 activities that require lots of technology, it's very difficult to compete with the U.S. Um, so uh, let's take, uh, you know, um, technology again, right? So so the U.S. has its its comparative advantage. Um, but I think the key question, question uh, Fred, is that what are African, uh, Africans, policymakers and African stakeholders expecting to get from uh, the relationship that they will have with China, with the U.S. and with the Eurozone. I think that's really uh, what a key question, especially for, um, at the end of the day, uh, the African common citizen, because uh, we want to these countries to grow. We want these countries to have uh, more employment, less inequalities, less poverty, and to improve their human development. So I think we have to put this question in the context of that and see what should also the African citizen get from uh, this trade and investment with these countries. For example, the case in point is, if you look at foreign direct investment, uh, one one issue is that if this foreign direct investment doesn't come with employment, doesn't come with transfers of skills and technology, then its uh, its effect on the population is 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 much much less right um, important right, and you could see think about an offshore oil rig somewhere on the ocean that we don't even see, and with oil revenues that. Uh, uh, we don't even see or we might not um, benefit from as, 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 as the local population, I mean by we, uh, compared to, you know, uh, uh, an investment where we are training programmers, we are pre- training technicians, and over time, you know, we have some of these young people that become entrepreneurs. Let's go back to the uh, U.S.-Africa Business Forum here just for a second. Um we know that the U.S. government is involved in the event through the Commerce Department, but what longer-term role does the U.S. government play uh, and do governments generally play um, in kind of private sector investment? Yeah. So my sense is that when you compare the U.S. with other countries, the U.S. government is typically less aggressive into supporting or promoting its uh, its business. There's kind of um, uh, a separation of tasks that that doesn't exist as much in other countries, right? So in other countries, you have a very strong economic diplomacy with its with its pros and cons, right? Um, but but the U.S. typically has not been like that. I think what we've seen here is with the with the Obama administration is an effort to step up the role of the government as a Sherpa, as a matchmaker, as an enabler uh, in Africa. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, um, now, I think a lot more can be done. Uh, and... Uh, I guess at the end of the day, uh, it has been difficult to get U.S. taxpayers money to support such um, such uh, uh, such an effort. Uh, but um, I think, for example, one could think about U.S. economic diplomacy in Africa and uh, having U.S. embassies and, and, and U.S. diplomats 
playing a much greater role when it comes to, you know, facilitating trade and investment between uh, the U.S. and the continent. Well, Amadou, let's, uh, let's wrap up this conversation by uh, kind of going back to a theme that you and I discussed two years ago, and I encourage listeners to go and find that episode uh, that I did with you two years ago and listen to it. It's really excellent. And that is, um, we, we often think about Africa as one entity, uh, but as I said in the intro, it's, it's a vast continent, 54 countries. But now regional integration is uh, becoming a rallying cry for many of those countries. Why is this trend important? Yes, I think this trend is, is really important. First of all, I mean, from the perspective of foreign investors, uh, you know, some many African countries are quite small. It's small market size. You could have a, a big U.S. metro area, which is... <laughs> which has a GDP which is much, much higher than uh, some of these African countries. With regional integration, you get scale, right? And, 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 and you get really much bigger markets. So, so I think that's from a U.S. perspective. But from an African perspective too, you know, um, by having, you know, free movement of people, free movement of capital, free movement of goods. You know, we can have more intra-regional trade, more intra-regional investment, and that could help spur uh, growth. So I think everybody has to win, really, uh, from uh, uh, encouraging regional integration in Africa. It's happening. It's a multi-speed uh, phenomenon. Uh, the Eastern African community, which has uh, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, is making a lot of progress. Uh, others, like uh, uh, the West African Monetary Union, uh, have, have been integrated for a long time, at least financially, um, and are also uh, trying to, to strengthen that integration. Uh, in the southern cone also, we have um, South Africa and the neighboring countries, and we have SADC and so on. So we have a lot happening, but I would like to see a greater role played by Nigeria in the ECOWAS, uh, which, which is like the, the community of Western African state. Uh, it's difficult because Nigeria is the is the one of the biggest uh, economy in uh, in Africa and, uh, and others countries that are in the West are, are, are much smaller. But let's say we were just we just finished a study looking at um, a swift data, basically. Uh, payments, transfer, uh, money transfers um, uh, from one country to the other. And, and you could see that Nigeria is not playing the role it could when it comes to financial integration in the region. So a lot more can be done. We're coming from a low base. This should be a priority. Well, I want to thank you, Amadou, for your, uh, sharing your time and your expertise today to help us understand. Yeah, always a pleasure, Fred. You can find out more about Amadou C. and the Africa Growth Initiative on our website at brookings.edu slash africagrowth. Our final part of this episode is Bill Finan's interview with Stephen Koltai, author of the new Brookings Institution Press title, Peace Through Entrepreneurship, Investing in a Startup Culture for Security and Development. Joblessness, Koltai argues, is the root cause of the global unrest threatening American security. Fostering entrepreneurship is the remedy. Here's Bill and Steve. Fred, thanks, and thank you, Stephen, for joining us today for this podcast. I thought we'd start by you telling us a bit about yourself. You've had an interesting career, and your experiences are distilled in your new book. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I, the book 
is very much written from the perspective of a business person who went to Washington. So um, it's unusual, I think, both for from a Brookings Press standpoint in that regard, um, and 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 also perhaps for the general audience. Um, so I'm a I'm 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 somebody who has a, about a 30 year business career, um, mostly in the entertainment industry. Uh, spent a decade at Warner Brothers as head of corporate strategy and development. Uh, spent some time on Wall Street, Solomon Brothers in management consulting at McKinsey, um, and then uh, had several uh, entrepreneurial ventures. So my career is about uh, a third entrepreneurial, two-thirds corporate. Uh, and the entrepreneurial ventures were, were generally speaking, uh, miserably unsuccessful, um, with the exception of one that was very successful, which was a, uh, a television satellite company that is today called SES and that is based in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg and distributes um, over 6,200 channels of audio, video, and data on 52 satellites. It's most commercial cable television channels outside the United States, everything from Al Jazeera to CNN to MTV um, outside the United States. And uh, I only came to this public policy work later after having retired from a business career. Um, I, I really had sort of a second career, which was uh, started at the State Department and then led to, to this book. And that position at the State Department was a, a newly created first-time position, and that was? Yes. I was the first uh, senior advisor for entrepreneurship in uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton's um, State Department. Uh, and the um, post uh, really came about um, because of President Obama's Cairo speech in June um, 2009 at Cairo University, where for the first time, a president of the United States talked about using um, America's entrepreneurial skill and know-how to uh, in a foreign policy context. Uh, in this particular case, it was to spur job creation in the Muslim world. And um, coincidentally, that was what would, had been one of my passions and interests for quite a long time. And so when that uh, was in his speech, it was the perfect um, match uh, to, to starting this program. You were an entrepreneur. Your book has three major concerns or arguments. One of the most important is the need to make entrepreneurship the centerpiece of our economic development policies, our foreign policy, in, in fact. What do you mean by entrepreneurship? Well, I, I, I equate entrepreneurship with the single most powerful job-creating tool. So really my view is that that the most important thing, the thing that can that contributes most to failed states and to the rise of terrorism is actually joblessness, particularly among young people. And that while uh, uh, clearly there are many, many factors here, cultural, political, religious, historical, um, no, no doubt about that. When you actually look at and you talk to an interview and uh, some of the people who are at the forefront of these uh, movements, um, whether they're terrorist movements or whether they're movements to recast a government, it's very often driven by the frustration and desperation of jobless people. And 
we know in the United States that the single best way to create jobs is through entrepreneurship. In fact, um, in the United States, uh, according to the Kauffman Foundation, from 1985 to 2005, in that 20-year period, all of the net job increases in the United States were in small and medium-sized businesses that had been started by entrepreneurs. So applying that same theory abroad, um, uh, you know, w- when we have a, an, a, an unemployment rate here of eight and a half percent, like it was after the recession of two thousand eight, it was an, it was a national disaster. It was it was a catastrophe. In, in the Arab world, the average unemployment rate is thirty five percent, and in most countries, that only includes men because they don't even track women's unemployment. So it's an it's an enormous driver of instability, and entrepreneurship, I believe, is proven as the single best way the single best antidote uh, to counteract that. You uh, give an example in the book of the kind of entrepreneurship you're you're interested in fostering, and, and that's the story of Lorna Rato in Nairobi, Kenya. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect example. Um, Lorna, you know, was a, a very enterprising, is a very enterprising young woman who um, saw the amount of garbage, um, particularly plastics, um, that were um, uh, being discarded and started a business to um, really accomplish two or three things at the same time. One is deal with the garbage. Uh, two is recycle, because she was very much aware that this was non-biodegradable material that would last forever, either in the ocean or in landfills. And three, to create a new product, which was a new kind of fiber, um, and and from which a whole bunch of things from, you know, uh, <laughs> textiles to purses to building materials could be fashioned. That's the kind of entrepreneur. And she then went on to create a successful business, which has, you know, employed uh, at this point hundreds of people. Um, That's an example of the kind of entrepreneurship that I'm talking about that we find in the developing world very often in the most inhospitable places. And it's why the cover of the book is sort of shoots poking through cracks in the concrete because in the United States, entrepreneurs are rock stars. But in the developing world, which is where I spend most of my time, um, they're they're the furthest thing possible from rock stars. They're the crabgrass that grows up in the cracks. And that's – Lorna is an example of that. And and one one thing you make clear in the book too, when you talk about entrepreneurship, you're not talking about opening up a Von Me shop, but it's something like what Lorna did too, because it's scalable. It, you can make it larger. Right, right. It's it's a very important point. I I make a distinction between small business and entrepreneurship. So. Uh, anybody who opens a new cafe or a restaurant or a barber shop is a small business person, and that's great. But the difference between opening uh, a barber shop and being what I call a scalable entrepreneur is the difference between what Starbucks is versus a barber shop. Starbucks innovated a business process. In my definition of an entrepreneur is someone who innovates a product or process and has the ability to make it happen. So Starbucks didn't invent coffee, but they invented a new process, a new model for selling coffee. So in, in, in my parlance, you can have no-tech, low-tech, and high-tech 
entrepreneurs, which is an important distinction because in America, we tend to think just of tech entrepreneurs. In the developing world, it's all three of those, but it's still distinguished from just any new small business because it has either a product or a process innovation, which is what then allows it to scale. Uh, so today, for example, and I have this statistic in the book, there are more people who work for Starbucks in Silicon Valley than who work for all of Google worldwide. Your time in government also led to a frustration, and that's a third concern in the book. Um, you, you talk about entrepreneurship and uh, burgeoning youth unemployment, um, and the third is the, our current development program, and you offer an extended scathing critique of the U.S. Agency for International Development and the State Department, of which it's a part in the pages of the book. Can you take a moment to explain what this current development program is that the U.S. has under USAID and why it is a central problem? Yes. Um, You know, I I, I make the the point that as an outsider, as a businessman, as an entrepreneur coming into the government, I had a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland experience. It sort of looked like America. It sounded like America, but it wasn't America. in, in, in my experience in, in the entrepreneurial world, where, when, when, you, when you face an obstacle or a problem, you, you know, you find the workaround and you, you, you plow through it. In government, so often what I found was that if it can't be done, there's a reason it can't be done and it just can't be done. And that was true. That is true across the board in government. It's not, I don't think, unique to just um, the State Department or USAID. What, what also is a key problem that I talk about in the book is that the vast majority of the actual programming, of the actual activity of implementing the policy that government comes up with is conducted by outside contractors. And that is increasing annually. It's well over half of U.S. government activity, both domestic and foreign, is handled by contractors. Is that part of that privatization that went in place uh, in the early 80s? Yes. Yes. And I think it was also part of the view of probably both administrations that the private sector can do things better. Um, what what has happened, though, I don't necessarily refute that the private sector can do things better. I, I actually think that's true. The problem is that the method by which the government selects the contractors, what, what in government parlance is the procurement and contracting mechanism, is so broken that very often the people most able to accomplish the task are not the ones who win the contract. And I give the example um, – I, I use the, the, the metaphor that it's like turning a screw with a rubber screwdriver. We, 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 even if we have the policy right, and many policymakers agree with the importance of job creation through entrepreneurship. So frankly, that is less n- novel and less difficult of a concept to, to understand, though of course there are people who disagree even with that. What's more difficult is to make it happen using this rubber screwdriver. And that's where I talk about the need for procurement and contracting reform which frankly are usually not within the purview of civil servants or foreign service officers, but they come from Congress via the federal acquisition requirements, uh, which is which is what governs all U.S. government procurement. It's a 54-volume set. Each volume is 2,000 pages, phone book thickness, if people still remember what phone books looked like. Um, and that's what it takes to win a U.S. government contract. So needless to say, um, a very, very small number of people do that. Uh, at USAID, um, there are l- less than 10 contractors that account for a third of USAID's $35 billion annual budget. So there's this Byzantine process of winning contracts, but there's also 
this focus on large projects too that that's that's been part of the U.S. development program for ages, ever since the end of the Cold War, I guess. Absolutely. And, you know, you've put your finger, Bill, on one of the other metaphors I use, which is the, the, the difficulty of small, innovative, entrepreneurial companies and organizations to become contractors and work with the U.S. government. And the metaphor I use is it's like a mouse dancing with a hippo. It always ends badly for the mouse. And, and that's what happens when smaller companies try um, to win some of these contracts because m- dancing with the hippo, managing the process of applying, complying – once you have the contract, um, are so onerous that unless you have a large organization with a lot of people with a lot of specialized experience in managing U.S. government contracts, you're you're just going to run screaming from the room in the opposite direction. So we have the problem, but you also have a solution or solutions and and, and, the, and that solution is to focus on focus on entrepreneurship, but it's not just focusing on entrepreneurship. You use the example of the fact that everyone thinks of entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs or Hewlett Packard creating their tech empires and garages, and those, but those garages existed not in a desert, but in what you call an ecosystem, um, and that's what you want to build, build out an, uh, an entrepreneurial ecosystem, and you have a six plus six entrepreneurial ecosystem model that you talk about at length in the book. Can you tell us about the various elements of that? Yes. Um, uh, I, after studying how entrepreneurship grows or doesn't grow, I realized that um, there's no silver bullet. There's no one single thing that accounts for success. It's not about starting a venture capital firm and all of a sudden a whole bunch of startups spring up around it. It's not about a business plan competition. It's not about one incubator that started in a derelict building downtown. It's about a complex of things. And so I developed this six plus six model for entrepreneurial ecosystem building, which frankly works both in the U.S. or in a developed country as well as in a developing country. And it basically proceeds from the premise that I just described, which is that it's not about one thing. And in this case, I've identified six categories of activity and six categories of player that must be woven together programmatically to create programs that actually move the needle in spurring more entrepreneurship. So the six categories of activity are identify, train, connect, and sustain, fund, enable public policy, and celebrate entrepreneurs. And the six categories of players are corporations, foundations, universities, non-government organizations or NGOs, investors, and government. And so in the work that I do uh, through my consulting firm, we we design and execute programs, almost always with many other partners, um, that fill in the gaps in an ecosystem that come from this six plus six analysis. So we first do a diagnostic of an ecosystem, and an ecosystem can be a neighborhood in a big American city, or it can be a state, or it can be a country. Um, Entrepreneurship usually is hyper-local, so the ecosystem needs to be pretty local. Um, and and then you you know when you find what the gaps are, then you can address filling them. Thanks, Stephen, for showing us the dark corners of the development program we now have in place, and where we could sh- shine some attention to what your book calls for: peace through entrepreneurship. Thanks much for having me. You can get a copy of Peace Through Entrepreneurship on our website. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. 
My thanks to audio engineer and producer Mark Holscher and to producer Vanessa Sauter. Bill Finan does the book interviews, and design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to Richard Fawal for podcast support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Want to ask a scholar a question? Send an email to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll get an answer for you. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.